0: Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show.
1: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Is it really Thursday already? Wow. Uh, James Blind is engineering and producing today's program. It's a good time to fast and pray. He was commenting on the fact that he hasn't done a live show for some time. So are you feeling a little rusty over there? Yeah, well, I'm sure you'll be great. Today, we're looking forward to a conversation with Travis Weber. He's the director of the Center for Religious Liberty at the Family Research Council. He's also the author of an updated Religious Hostility in America report. It's titled Hostility to Religion, the Growing Threat to Religious Liberty in the United States. I wish we were um, talking about a different kind of report, but it is um, instructive and Gives us at least some understanding of the context in which uh, we are called upon to live out our faith. Uh, we're also going to talk in the five o'clock hour with Johnny Erickson Tata, and am I excited about that conversation? Yeah, just a just a smidge. Anyway, she is uh, marking the fiftieth anniversary of her confinement to a wheelchair. As you might recall, back in nineteen sixty-seven, I believe it was, she was involved in an automobile accident. It left her a paraplegic. There were two years of Um, of uh, rehabilitation. And uh, her story really is just, it's amazing. And if you're not familiar with Johnny and friends with Johnny Erickson Tata, you're going to want to listen into that conversation. She was one of the keynote speakers at Mission Connection this past year. Or was that this year? It's January, so it's this year. Seems like longer ago. But just a tremendous speaker and a uh, she knows God's Word. She's a great inspiration. In fact, I think you can still, maybe not, but you might still be able to go to the Mission Connection website and hear her um, hear her speaking. I know I saved it um, and have listened more than a few times and referred others to it as well. Anyway, we're talking with her at 5 o'clock. Uh, this anniversary is uh, pretty significant. They're also reissuing the movie about her life that she starred in. It was produced... Um, by the Billy Graham Association, I think about 38 years ago. We're going to talk about that digitization of the movie and its uh, re-release in that format. It's been translated into 15 languages and has been seen and heard all around the world. Finally, we're going to talk with Robert Rucker. He happens to be a nuclear engineer. Uh, He's also the organizer of the International Conference on the Shroud of Turin. Uh, it's coming to Pasco, Washington, in July, and this is an opportunity to sit in on one of these uh, con- conferences in which experts from a variety of co- excuse me a variety of countries uh, talk about their findings, and they're always uh, researching and evaluating and analyzing the material. and He himself has done some work in uh, better understanding how the image on the shroud of Turin uh, got there. Now, the the, the uh, artifact will not be. Uh, in pasco but there will be a replica uh, of it so uh, we'll tell you more about that when he joins me at the bottom of the hour in the five o'clock hour well, taking a quick look at some of the news, um, House Republicans took action today to crack down on illegal immigration and the cities that shelter them. One bill passed by the House would deny federal grants to sanctuary cities. And another, Kate's law, would increase the penalties for deported aliens who try to return to the United States. Now, Kate's law it would uh, increase the penalties for deported aliens who try to return to the United States and caught passed with a vote of 257 to 157, with one Republican voting no, 24 Democrats voting yes. Kate's law was named, uh, sadly, for Kate Steinel, a San Francisco woman killed by an illegal immigrant who was in the United States despite multiple deportations. The two-year anniversary of her death is on Saturday. The president called the bill's passage good news in a tweet, adding, House just passed Kate's law, or hashtag Kate's law. Hopefully, Senate will follow. Well, that's always a big Question mark, And that will be bold and underlined. We don't know what the Senate will do, but it's not likely to pass it anytime soon. Um, he should not have been here and she should not have died, House Speaker Paul Ryan said today in the final push for Kate's law, an earlier version of which was blocked in the Senate last year. So again, it's not altogether clear what will happen now. Our job here is to make sure that those professionals have the tools that they need and the resources that they need to carry out their work and to protect our communities. That is what these measures are all about, Ryan went on to say. The other bill, which would deny federal grant to sanctuary cities, passed with a vote of 228 to 195, with three Democrats voting yes, seven Demo- uh, Rep- Republicans, rather, seven Republicans voting no. The brutal murder of Steinle uh, catapulted the issue of Illegal criminal aliens into the national spotlight. The alleged shooter Juan Francisco Lopez Sanchez had been deported five times and had seven felony convictions. On Wednesday, President Trump highlighted other cases during a White House meeting with more than a dozen families of people who'd been victimized by illegal immigrants, including um, one 17-year-old Shaw. Uh, The 17-year-old Jamil was shot and killed by an illegal immigrant in California in March of 2008. He was living the dream, his father said during the meeting. That was squashed out. The second measure, No Sanctuary for Criminals Act, would cut federal grants to states and sanctuary cities that refuse to cooperate with law enforcement carrying out immigration enforcement activities. Again, this has to make its way to the Senate, where its certain its future is uncertain. The word sanctuary recalls uh, the, the um, uh, Idea of someplace safe, but too often for families and victims affected by illegal immigrant crimes, sanctuary cities are anything. But that's a quote from uh, Secretary uh, Homeland Security Secretary John Kelly. Uh, in his pre-vote press conference, it's beyond my comprehension, he went on to say, why federal, state and local officials would actively discourage or outright prevent law enforcement agencies from upholding the laws of the United States. While gaining support in the Senate for similar legislation will be tough road, Trump called the Congress to act quickly. He called on the House and the Senate to honor grieving American families by approving a package of truly key immigration enforcement bills so that he could sign them into law. I promise you, he said... It, it uh, will be done quickly. You don't have to wait the uh, mandatory period. It will be quick. Promise the president. That's a direct quote, by the way. Well, earlier on uh, Wednesday, Immigration and Customs Enforcement Director Thomas Homan and U.S. Attorney from uh, uh, for Utah John Huber made their case for the bills during the White House press briefing. Uh, Huber said 40 percent of Utah's current felony caseload involves criminal alien prosecutions, and the number is increasing. The bills, Huber asserted, would advance the, the uh, ball for law enforcement in keeping their communities safe and would give officers and prosecutors more tools to protect the public. Many immigration rights groups have characterized efforts to crack down on sanctuary cities as anti-immigrant. But Attorney General Jeff Sessions says it's not sound policy to allow sanctuary cities to flout federal immigration laws. According to Homan, ICE already has arrested nearly 66,000 individuals this year that were either known or suspected to be in the country illegally. Of those uh, arrested, 48,000 were convicted criminal aliens. The practice of... um, Practices, rather, of these jurisdictions are not only contrary to sound policy, they're contrary to the law enforcement cooperation that is carried out every day in our country and is essential to public safety, Sessions wrote in a Fox News op ed backing the bill. Again, both bills passed the House. What happens next in the Senate? Well, again, uncertain. Well, you may need to um, invest in a new hands-free setup for your car. Oregon lawmakers are close to passing a new strict hands-free law that won't allow drivers to touch their phones or any other mobile electronic device while behind the wheel. The Oregon Senate is scheduled to vote on House Bill 2597 on Thursday, Well, today, some lawmakers um, uh, said that the bill is a sure thing would become effective immediately after the governor signs it. That did pass. In fact, I learned this afternoon. You need a holder or something. Um, They are saying this is a new law. There's uh, no holding. You can't uh, have it in your hands. You can't be actively using your phone. It literally means hands free, touch free. Uh, The new law is strict, but uh, they found many people support it. And uh, we'll tell you more about that. As it uh, becomes the law of the state of Oregon, I suspect. We're going to take a quick break. 16 minutes after 4 o'clock is the time. We'll be back.
0: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: We're back 19 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Let me backtrack just a little bit. I, my notes were not up to date. Yes, it did pass. It uh, did pass 46 to 13 in the Senate. It already passed in the House and will make its way to the uh, the governor's office. And as I'm looking for um, this particular website that I'm trying to uh, read from is uh, is crashing. So um, anyway, we do know the vote was 46-13 uh, in favor of this new hands-free bill. You can't touch. Uh, you can't be doing anything with your phone. You have to have some sort of a hands-free setup, although I'm not sure if that means your phone is in a holder. You can't touch it to dial it. Maybe you can do it audibly. Anyway, it uh, it did pass, and the governor is expected to sign it. We'll just leave it at that for the time being. And I'm not clear when that um, uh, becomes the law. I will tell you the maximum fine is $2,000. If you're busted once, you can go to the distracted driver course to get it off your record. Busted twice uh, in 10 years, so... That's a that's a long period. Twice in 10 years, two thousand dollars a third time. uh, It will be a minimum fine of two thousand, possibly jail time. So they're taking this pretty seriously. I'm not sure they're going to enforce this any better than the law that already existed. But it will be the law in Oregon, assuming the governor does, in fact, sign it. Okay, Um, James just uh, provided further updates since my computer is crashing uh, can you say that once again, James, it's going back to the House for concurrence and then for a signature. So there apparently there are some small differences between the House and Senate version. OK, thank you. Appreciate that. Well, that was very sloppily done. But you get the idea. Uh, holding your phone at some point in the not too distant future will be criminal. Well, the Trump administration uh, set new criteria for visa applicants. Uh From six mainly Muslim countries and all refugees that require a close family or business tie to the United States, the move came after the Supreme Court partially restored the president's executive order, which was widely criticized as the ban on Muslims. Now, these are um, what six Muslim countries out of some 40 something that are predominantly Muslim that were not listed. Um, The the, uh, visas that have already been approved will not be revoked, but instructions issued by the State Department say that new applicants from Syria, Sudan, Somalia, Libya, Iran, and Yemen must prove a relationship with a uh, parent, spouse, child, adult, son or daughter, daughter son-in-law, daughter-in-law, sibling already in the United States to be eligible. The same requirement, with some exceptions, holds uh, for would-be refugees from all nations who are still awaiting approval for admission to the United States. Now, keep in mind, this is a 90-day travel ban. It will expire by the time the Supreme Court in October takes the issue up. Grandparents, grandchildren, aunts, uncles, nieces, nephews, cousins, brothers-in-law, sisters-in-law, fiancés, and other extended family members are not considered To be close relationships according to the guidelines that were issued in a cable sent to all U.S. embassies and was obtained by the Associated Press. Well, as far as business or professional links are concerned, the State Department said a legitimate relationship must be formal, documented, and formed in the ordinary course rather than for the purpose of evading the ban. Journalists, students, workers, or lecturers who have valid invitations or employment contracts in the United States would be exempt from the ban. The exemption does not apply to those who who seek a relationship with an American business or educational institution purely for the purpose of avoiding the rules, the cable said a hotel reservation or car rental contract, even if it was prepaid, would also not count. So that has uh, begun uh, and will, uh, will last for 90 days. Well, the United States Senate has uh, just 35 working days until the end of the fiscal year on September the 30th. And that's assuming Mondays and Fridays are indeed used for deliberation, which is not always the case. One thing is totally clear. There isn't time to deal with the issues that demand immediate attention. I mean, after all, it's summer. These guys need time off. Of course, I do, too, but I'm sort of required to be here. (sighs) The only appropriate response, according to Senator David Perdue, the only appropriate response is to cancel or heavily truncate the annual August recess that turns the United States Capitol into a ghost town. Now, we're talking about Senator David Perdue, who would have to be working. Last year, voters handed Republicans a Senate majority, a House majority, and the White House. They gave us a probationary period to turn the conservative policies we champion into actual results, he writes. The expectations are high and we've made some progress. We've confirmed, rather, Justice Neil Gorsuch to the Supreme Court. We've taken on the boldest rollback of federal regulations since President Ronald Reagan was in office. We've gotten President Donald Trump's cabinet in place and made some uh, headway on health care. But all of this consumed the first half of the year. The American people are expecting us to get us get much more done. Five imperatives must be accomplished. In short order, again, quoting from Senator David Perdue. First, he writes, we have to complete the work of the first phase of repealing Obamacare and fixing our health care system. Second, we have to pass a budget resolution that will work within the reconciliation process for changing the tax code. Third, we have to use the appropriations process to fund the federal government by the end of the fiscal year on September 30th. Fourth, we have to deal with our debt limit. The Treasury Department has used extraordinary measures to buy time since the national debt hit its limit of $19.8 trillion in March. Fifth, we have to finally act on our own in-a-generation opportunity to change our archaic uh, tax code. But we'll only be able to do that if uh, if we don't get stuck on the first four priorities. All five of these priorities are unique and present their own challenges. For example, the current budget and appropriations process is broken. It has worked the way it has, uh, was intended just for four months in the past 43 years since the Budget Act of 1974. This year, however, the stakes are much higher. The opportunity to change our archaic tax code is hanging in the balance. Markets are already anticipating regulatory relief and additional changes to the tax code that will make us more competitive with the rest of the world. Failure to deliver could cause uncertainty in financial markets and erode the budding confidence among consumers and CEOs. Well, he says this is what must be done, and he's willing as a U.S. senator who is a sitting senator to cancel or heavily truncate the annual August recess that turns the United States Capitol into a ghost town. We'll see if his colleagues heed his suggestion. I'm guessing not so much, although maybe truncating the vacation is more likely than canceling it altogether. But what a good faith gesture that would be if, in fact, they decided to do so. Now, one could argue that presumably when they go back home in August, they're spending time with and meeting with their constituents. I mean, one would assume that. Maybe not. Um, Given the uh, temperature right about now, it might be in their best interest not to go home and meet with their constituents. They're a little bit um, touchy these days. Uh, That's putting it it mildly. So anyway, this is what one sitting senator says they need to do to deal with the people's business. And California, which is something of a republic in and of itself, well, I wouldn't necessarily call it a republic. It's it's not that. But California is issuing travel bans on uh, some red states. Now, California is a state among the fifty. And they are issuing travel bans on some of the red states that they, well, they disagree with. Single-party dominance has made California a little crazy. Jarrett Stepman points out that after a Calexit secession effort failed when its leader decided to move back to Russia, the deep blue state has now turned to the other methods of resisting the change in political fortunes. On Friday, the California Assembly narrowly failed to pass a bill to bring single-payer health care to the state, which would have cost more than double the entire current California budget. It was more a matter of math than anything else. But in an age of Trump, the Golden State hasn't been content to focus on its own business. It has now turned its agenda outward by crafting its own travel ban, aiming at, um, or rather aimed at punishing sister states for not going along with with its views, California's Attorney General Xavier Baccarra announced on Friday that the state would no longer fund travel to states deemed discriminatory toward LGBT people. So the states no longer have the right to be distinct in what uh, they hold as um, sacrosanct within their borders. Uh, but the... Um, Uh, The Attorney General Becara said, while the California Department of Justice works to protect the rights of all our people, discriminatory laws in any part of our country sends all of us several steps back. You know, the states are independent. Anyway, Uh, that's why when California said we would not tolerate discrimination against LGBTQ members of our community, we meant it, he said, and they're certainly entitled to do that. The people within that state have a right to have what happens in that state reflect their priorities. There are now eight states on California's travel ban, Alabama, Kentucky, South Dakota, Texas, Mississippi, Tennessee, Kansas and North Carolina. I don't see a lot of Californians flocking to, I don't know, South Dakota or Kansas, for that matter. What are the policies that California found so odious? Well, the Tennessee law California targeted is unacceptable, was one that said therapists who work with parents don't have to counsel uh, same sex couples on how to have better marriage. Uh, The problematic Texas law was one that allowed adoption agencies to work with parents, but not same-sex parents without penalty. The other state laws California found unacceptable were in a similar vein. The ban could have wide-ranging consequences, in particular for college sports. For instance, college coaches of the University of California schools may not be able to receive funding for travel when their teams play in Texas. California's travel ban has already caused confusion and chaos for college football schedulers. Tennessee lawmakers wrote a blistering response to California. I don't have time to share it with you, but it's worth reading. Among other comments, uh, the message said California's attempt to influence public policy in our state is akin to Tennessee expressing its disapproval of California's exorbitant taxes, spiraling budget deficits, runaway social welfare programs and rampant illegal immigration. Well, the war between the states apparently has not come to an end as California has uh, offered the first salvo. Thirty minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Quick break, but when we return, we'll talk with Travis Weber. He's the director of the Center for Religious Liberty at the Fe- the Family Research Council. He's also the author of the updated Religious Hostility Report: Hostility to Religion: The Growing Threat to Religious Liberty in the United States. We'll be back.
0: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: Well, the Family Research Council today released, rather, Hostility to Religion, the Growing Threat to Religious Liberty in America. It's a report documenting dozens of new incidents of government hostility to religion in America in just the past three years. Well, here to talk with us about that is Travis Weber. He's the director of the Center for Religious Liberty at the Family Research Council, and he's the author of this updated Religious Hostility in America report. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me on.
1: Uh, Now, let's talk about the period that this uh, updated report covers, and then uh, tell us what some of the more significant findings are.
2: Absolutely. So this covers basically the last three years. The last report was July of uh, 2014, and this one's June 2017. And in that time period, we find a 76% increase overall in the number of documented incidents, um, in all uh, four sections that we cover in the report. Now, this is not exhaustive. There are other incidents we are aware of, and we conservatively estimated the number. Uh, you know, for instance, I count as one violation a lot of the cases that are wrapped into the HHS mandate issue in which the Obama administration fought against religious exemptions, but there are many affected by that issue. So in reality, if the number of those affected is much higher, um, and, uh, you know, we significantly found a high increase in the last two sections of the report dealing with religious beliefs regarding sexuality and marriage.
1: Now, are these um, uh, expressions of hostility that are inadvertent? Are they directed toward um, the freedom of religion? How do these these conflicts occur in, in general?
2: Yeah, so many of them are a free exercise issue, uh, a freedom of religion issue where an individual to you know, live out their faith, and they're being hampered in that. However, because it's hostility religion, we include um, uh, issues in which um, uh, those hostile to the public expression of religion, uh, you know, such as militant atheist groups are trying to fight against public Ten Commandments, commandments monuments, things like that, which you know really is, is legally is an Establishment Clause issue or some something else. But it's the same uh, dynamic in terms of erasing the public expression of religion, um, just as people want to fight against someone's public free exercise uh, of their individual faith. And so we include all those incidents, but they are different in some of the legal issues and, um, you know, some of the motivations. I mean, uh, you have here governments uh, targeting some people, other cases it's activists and governments may go along with it. So there's a variety of, of players and motivations, but this is all about action taken against the public expression of religion in the United
1: States. Now we know under the previous administration, there were uh, efforts to refer to the free exercise of religion in a very different way. For example, using the phrase the freedom of worship, which while it may seem like just a semantic uh, slip of the tongue, it actually has a significant meaning in, in contrast to what the free exercise of religion means. Um, are we seeing that trend continue under this current administration? Are we seeing at least this being addressed in a serious way, recognizing that some of the policies that were put into place um, had the effect of undermining uh, the freedom of religion?
2: Yeah, yeah I think we're seeing, starting to see some good changes under the new administration. Um, we had a Religious Liberty Executive Order and there are attempts to deal with the HHS mandate issue right now. And some of the you know, the, the guidance concerning uh, transgender issues, though not a religious liberty issue on its face, certainly impacts religious liberty because we document in the report, for instance, um, last administration's agencies forcing religious hospitals to violate their conscience with regard to um, medical, medical procedures for those claiming to um, you know, identify as the opposite sex, opposite gender. And so um, you know, certainly there is a start to some good action the last few months. We want to continue to monitor and address the concerns, though, because they're still out there, they still exist. And, um, you know, it's certainly something that we're going to have to continue to to address.
1: Are the courts the the answer to resolving some of these conflicts, or are we seeing this more in uh, in the realm of public policy?
2: I would say we need to address both areas. Um, You know, the courts are going to address some issues. For instance, the court just ruled in the Trinity Lutheran case, that was a First Amendment free exercise issue. And some of those under the federal constitution are going to reach the Supreme Court. But at the same time, you see broad broader trends like the wedding vendor cases, which are documented in the Section 4 of the report regarding uh, the use of nondiscrimination laws against religious exercise. So here, this is happening in many states. It's occurring on a wider scale, and we need state legislation protecting uh, individuals who believe in natural marriage, believe marriage is between a man and a woman. Uh, we need to have them protected by statute in those states and and carve out the ability for them to opt out things that violate their conscience, you know, because that's otherwise it's going to be a a long process and it's not ideal to have each of those go to court.
1: Now, it's important for us to have some perspective on what's happening in in the country with regard to the free exercise of religion. Uh, What do you hope this uh, this report um, helps us better understand and how we might respond? yeah
2: I just I want people to i to notice the trend in the report. You know a lot of people feel that they are not affected by the issue yet and so they remain apathetic about it. but if you see the trends here, you can see that although you may not be affected, there are trends that eventually will end up on your doorstep and there are three instances um involving churches, even in this report, uh, most directly and um, you know this is something where many people say, well that's not going to happen well you can even see a tip of that happening in the report. You know, and, and you mentioned earlier the last administration and freedom to worship. It's important to understand that, you know, these philosophies, the philosophies pushed by opponents of freedom, free of our religion have their end game in the full erasure of public exercise of religion, public expression of religion. There are attempts now to eliminate, um, you know, the ability of counselors to even counsel people with unwanted same-sex attraction. So the, the goal is, You know, it's like a wave that keeps pushing and doesn't stop until, you know, anyone not approving of a certain individualistic, um, agnostic, humanistic, individually focused view of sexuality that's being pushed in progressive circles. Now, unless you approve of that, you're going to be stopped. And that's the thing I want people to see at the end of the day is this trend will eventually affect them, even if it doesn't affect them yet.
1: Now, for uh, listeners who are interested in reading the report, I would imagine there are um, leaders, pastors, and just rank-and-file believers who would like to better understand what's happening around us. Uh, What's the best way for them to acquire the report? So you can find
2: this on FRC's webpage. You can Google search for Hostility to Religion FRC, or you can uh, go to the the website um, frc.org slash uh, religious hostility, and um, you can find it right there.
1: I've also uh, put a link on the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page, so you can find it there as well. Well, I appreciate the work that you have done. I, I mentioned in uh, my introduction uh, that you are the uh, the author of this uh, report that's been updated. Uh, is this going to be an ongoing project in which you monitor over uh, periods of time? In this case, the last three years, uh, changes to how the government relates to and um, either supports or hinders, expresses hostility toward religious uh, uh, freedom.
2: It is. You know, and this is something that we at FRC um, have monitored or are going to continue to monitor. Religious liberty is a major issue for us right now. And, and um, you know, it affects so many different areas, the courts, legislatures, the culture, the media. Um, in all those areas, we need to track what's happening for the good of our country and the good of freedom. And so this is something we're going to continue to monitor and um, you know inform people as to what's happening in the future.
1: Well, I appreciate your uh, your diligence and for making this available. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Appreciate it. Again, uh, Travis Weber is the director of the Center for Religious Liberty at the Family Research Council. He's also the author of the updated Religious Hostility in America report. It's titled Hostility to Religion, the Growing Threat to Religious Liberty in the United States. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I want to remind you in the 5 o'clock hour, we're going to talk with Johnny Erickson Tata, Next month marks 50 years of uh, life in a wheelchair. We'll look at the ministry that has been born out of that tragedy in the next hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
0: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast, it is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: We are back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Facebook is planning a hiring spree of some 3,000 hate speech experts who are going to scour social media platforms uh, or the social media platform they would designate themselves as the social media platform for attacks on protected characteristics okay now my first question is who are these 3000 uh hate speech experts does that mean they're expert in using hate speech and they therefore they'd recognize it when they heard it uh, i don't know who these 3000 are what their qualifications are what their um what authority they have to determine what uh, constitutes hate speech and what the protected characteristics are that they are um, going to oversee and prevent from making it onto the platform. Well, a user base of more than 2 billion people has pushed Facebook to define hate speech as. A hard uh, as a hard questions blog post by Richard Allen, a vice president of EMEA public policy. Uh, The company laid out challenges that come with uh, policing content across different cultures. Now, I understand the challenge that they are facing. Uh, I get that. I just wonder about the 3000 and uh, how um, they're defining protected characteristics and what constitutes hate speech. For example, if a an honest disagreement um, on an issue that they've decided is uh, is something they support, is that considered hate speech? Well, people might, and this is a, a quote from Allen, uh, Mr. Allen, he wrote, people might disagree about the wisdom of a country's foreign policy or the morality of certain religious teachings, and we want them to be able to debate those issues on Facebook. Well, that's good. He goes on, but when does something cross the line into hate speech? Our current definition of hate speech is anything that directly attacks people based on what are known as their protected characteristics, their race, their ethnicity, national origin, religious affiliation, sexual orientation, sex, gender, gender identity, or serious disability or disease. So is making reference to any one of those things, if you have a theological difference or an argument, does that constitute protected uh, characteristic If you disagree on uh, whether or not there are many genders or just the two, is that considered hate speech? Well, Mr. Allen uh, said its a crop of 4,500 monitors will jump by um, over 65% while artificial intelligence continues to censor the most uh, obviously toxic language. Um, Reported, we're committed to removing hate speech any time we become aware of it, the executive said. Over the last two months, on average, we deleted around 66,000 posts reported as hate speech per week. That's around 288,000 posts a month globally. Well, Mr. Allen said one of the company's challenges involves understanding the proper context of flagged speech. People may reclaim offensive language that were used to attack them. Uh, Mr. Allen said when someone uses an offensive term in a self-referential way, it can feel very different from when the same term is used to attack them. For example, the use of the word, well, I won't even say it, may be considered hate speech when directed as an attack on someone on the basis of the fact that they are gay. However, if someone posted a photo of themselves with the word, it would be allowed. So they have a lot of um, consideration to determine when, what, where and how. Well, the company said mistakes would happen moving forward, but vowed to fix them as quickly as possible. Well, at least they acknowledge that mistakes will be made. And one wonders, where do you uh, go to challenge The censorship that they have announced they intend to impose. Meanwhile, the National Review is reporting that Twitter is attempting to silence one pro-life group. Twitter has just told the pro-life group live action that in order to advertise on the site, it has to delete all tweets that Twitter's uh, management deems offensive. Uh, The site uh, hasn't outright censored any of Live Action's tweets, but it has refused to permit the group to promote its content until it purges all of its inflammatory material. In quotes, by the way, included under this vast subjective umbrella are all tweets calling for the federal government to remove Planned Parenthood's taxpayer funding that apparently constitutes Inflammatory material. All tweets reporting on live actions undercover investigations into Planned Parenthood's clinics in which they incriminate themselves and any ultrasound images of unborn children. Now, these are ultrasound images of unborn children, not aborted children. So that is apparently inflammatory to see a child in utero. Uh, Using ultrasound is inflammatory material that will not be allowed. Meanwhile, Twitter continues allowing Planned Parenthood to advertise on the site. They're the ones, of course, who do the most abortions in the country. And, of course, you wouldn't want to show those images because they're not children living in utero. These are children who have been aborted, and those are very unpleasant images. Despite its own patently inflammatory rhetoric, they're permitted to... uh, To post on Twitter, as the live action site explains, the abortion group is permitted to call its opponents extremists and expound heated political rhetoric in defense of abortion. But under Twitter's restrictive new policy targeting live action, the pro-life group is no longer permitted to respond to these statements without losing its own advertising privileges. So they cannot respond to charges levied against them by Planned Parenthood. They go unchallenged because, well, that would just be unthinkable. It would be inflammatory. According to Twitter, Twitter has uh, every right to implement whatever policy it deems appropriate, regardless of whether or not its treatment is objectively fair. But this is the latest example of the pervasive bias that the pro-life movement, and for that matter, many on the um, more conservative side of the ledger, continually run up against and fresh evidence of the massive PR advantage that Planned Parenthood and its supporters enjoy when social media giants readily line up on the side of abortion rights. Now, My guess is this could never happen on Facebook. They're hiring 3,000 hate speech experts. These are people who are experts in hate speech. Now, we don't know what constitutes an expert. Um, One would assume that you have some experience in the area, that perhaps you've engaged in the very thing that you're now monitoring. Um, I I don't know. But Facebook is saying they're going to make sure that these protected characteristics – Um, are going to be covered and and, uh, any inflammatory or derogatory communication will be uh, done away with. Uh, And so I'm sure that uh, Facebook, with its 3,000 hate speech experts, are not going to be guilty of what Twitter is now uh, doing, and that is to censor the language and sometimes even efforts to defend the organization uh, from Planned Parenthood and its um, patently inflammatory rhetoric Just just a a bit of a warning that uh, social media may not be quite the safe place that expresses the full range of uh, points of view, giving the freedom of individuals to express themselves on a number of of issues. Now, hate speech does exist as that narrow classification I think all of us would agree upon. But what it seems to me, this social media platforms are talking about is something much different than that. It's not just that. Uh, that derogatory language that all of us would identify as, yes, that constitutes um, hate speech. We're we're talking about other things as well. So be aware. That's, I guess, my point. Well, Washington, D.C. has made X a gender option on driver's licenses and identification cards, making it the first jurisdiction in the U.S. to offer gender neutral identifications. Now, in Oregon, you can be a third gender, but here in Washington, D.C., you can be no gender at all doesn't matter that he created them male and female. 21st century Washington, D.C., you can be neither. A group of people became the first in America to receive gender neutral driver's licenses on Tuesday in the nation's capital. They prefer X as their gender marker instead of male or female because they identify as gender fluid, gender nonconforming, agender or another category. It's kind of hard to keep up. But that's what uh, they're doing in Washington, D.C. Meanwhile, um, Chris Lee, a Democratic state representative from Hawaii, made international headlines when he passed legislation creating a working group to study universal basic income. Now, this is Hawaii that's part of the United States. It's one of the 50 states, not contiguous, but it's still. Anyway, he recently joined the UBI podcast to discuss the legislation. He said the working group will analyze Hawaii's exposure to automation and the potential for solutions such as basic income to address the issue. Uh, the working group will also look at the efficacy of Hawaii's current social service system and whether it's adequate for the challenges of the future. It's safe to say that if we do nothing, these programs that are um, already spending money on our um, uh, are, are, and are going through the roof to say nothing of unemployment, other changes in the economy that's going to exacerbate income inequality and limit the opportunity for people to work and make a living. There is uh, no end date to the working group. And Lee said the key players will likely be organized by the end of the summer, he said he hopes that by the next legislative session in January, the working group will have produced enough research to push for funding for deeper research into evaluating various proposals. In other words, everybody has a basic income. You can, I suppose, earn something over that income. I don't know if there'd be a, a cap on it. You can't earn anything over a certain amount. But uh, So they're establishing a, an official work group to look into whether or not we want to have Hawaii become a reflection of the former Soviet Union. So that'll be an interesting uh, exercise. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. And when we return, I have a conversation with Johnny Erickson Tata. She is marking 50 years being confined, confined rather to a wheelchair. It's an anniversary worth commemorating because of the ministry that has been born out of that. And we'll talk with her about it in a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
0: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. We're glad to have you with us. Well, next month marks the 50th anniversary of the driving accident that left my next guest, Johnny Erickson Tata, a quadriplegic. She was injured on the 30th of July, 1967. She spent two years in rehabilitation and emerged with new skills and a fresh determination to help others in similar situations. She founded Johnny and Friends International Disability Center in 1979 to provide Christ-centered ministry to special needs families and uh, has served thousands of special needs families through family retreats and has delivered over 170,000 wheelchairs and Bibles to needy individuals with disabilities in developing nations. Next month marks the 50th year she has been confined to that wheelchair. And while most of us would see that as the end of what we would imagine a fulfilling and productive life, for her it marked a beginning that we've all had the opportunity to um, to look on in wonder. Johnny Erickson-Totta, Tata, is such a pleasure to have you with us today.
3: Oh, Georgine, thank you. And, you know, just listening to you recount the fact that I have been in this wheelchair for five decades. Oh my goodness, I'm breathless. I can't believe I've arrived here. I I just can't believe it. It's wonderful.
1: Now, some years ago when this happened, could you have imagined that God would use that circumstance, as most of us do when we are facing a tragedy, that we find it very difficult to see that this is, in fact, God's purpose for us moving forward? How long did it take you to recognize, maybe God has a plan for me, even in this circumstance?
3: Well, never, no way could I have possibly dreamed that one day God would use this wheelchair to give birth to a ministry that now takes hundreds of thousands Mm -hmm. of wheelchairs around the world to needy disabled people, and Shawnee and Friends runs retreats, we'll do 50 of them this summer, for special needs families here in the United States and in developing nations. Never, ever would I have dreamed? Never would I have thought. It would have never entered my mind that such ministry would have been possible through this wheelchair. To me, it is still amazing. And honestly, Georgine, there's not a day I wheel through the front doors of the headquarters of this ministry that I just don't Say, Lord Jesus, Mm. I cannot believe I'm here. I can't believe I get to do this. Look what you did with a depressed, despairing teenager who was so self-focused and self-absorbed, discouraged, despairing. Look what you've done. And, and, And I still... I still am
1: amazed. Mm. You know, I had the opportunity to hear you speak at Mission Connection here in Portland um, this past winter, and I still—I I kept a recording of that. I've referred it to many people. I listened to it myself many, many times. It was one of the the best and most inspiring um, speeches I've ever heard, and uh, I, I marvel at the fact that um, being in that wheelchair isn't simply a matter of not walking. There's a tremendous burden that goes along with. Uh, the life that you now live, the physical uh, stress, the, the requirement of others helping. This is a, a challenge every day. And I hadn't realized that. I hadn't thought about it in the way uh, that I do now, having heard you speak most recently. Help our listeners understand what it means to be confined to a confined to a wheelchair and the fact that God is using even this challenging circumstance to reach the world.
3: Well, every day for me is a challenge. I mean, I want our listeners to know my hands don't work, my feet don't walk. Uh, I've been sitting down for 50 years, and it means that every morning um, somebody's got to come into my bedroom and do my toileting routines and give me a bed bath and stretch and exercise my arms and legs and pull up support hose, drop on a corset, a binder, get me dressed, sit me in the wheelchair, push me to the bathroom brush my hair, and brush my teeth, and blow my nose. And and it's almost a two-hour routine. And honestly, uh, when I hear my girlfriends in the kitchen pouring water for coffee, and I know that in a few minutes they're going to come in my room to help me get up, I, I, I am overwhelmed. And I, I say, Jesus, I just, I don't have the strength for this. I have no mm. energy for this. I can't do this. But In the next breath, I have to say, and I always say, but I can do all things through you as you strengthen me, and I love the fact that this disability pushes me to the throne of God's grace every single morning, even though I might not feel like it, even though I might not want to go there. If I want to survive, if I want to not feel sorry for myself and move forward into life, I need God's grace daily. So it's what i'm celebrating i'm celebrating god's faithfulness i'm celebrating the fact that that this disability just drives me down the road to calvary every single morning where otherwise i just know i know i would not be naturally humanly inclined to go and that's a good thing
1: yes yes now, um, there was an announcement made earlier this month uh, about a special red carpet premiere to celebrate <laughs> the the digitization i 've worked all day on that word of the world famous movie Johnny. Uh, I remember when it first came out. it was uh, such a fascinating movie to me. it was one thousand nine hundred and seventy nine the Billy Graham. Um, worldwide Pictures produced and released the movie. Tell listeners who are perhaps too young to remember that about the original and the uh, the digitization and how this is likely to reach places where uh, perhaps uh, nothing else has so far. Well,
3: you know, I wrote a book called Johnny in the mid-70s. And Billy Graham's wife, Ruth, read that book and she gave it to her husband and said to him, Bill, you need to have this girl speak on one of your crusades, which I did back in 1976. And that, of course, opened the door for then Billy Graham to ask if I would play my own part in a movie uh, patterned after the book, a movie called Johnny. Now, at first I was hesitant, but I kept thinking of all the many people just like me, people who at one time were or trapped in self-pity or depression, people who were in trouble spiritually and emotionally, people you know, struggling with all sorts of chronic conditions. I wanted to help them find the God of the Bible that so satisfied my heart. And I realized that the movie could reach a whole lot of hurting people. So it was, what, uh, 1979, what, 38 years ago Mm. that movie came out, and uh, there were logged more than 250 decisions for Jesus Christ as a result of it. And now, even now, many years later, when we take wheelchairs around the world, we show the Spanish version of the Johnny movie. We show the Arabic version of the Johnny movie. We go to China and distribute wheelchairs and show the China, Chinese movie. It's, just, it's wonderful to sit in an auditorium such as I did uh, back in the late 80s when the wall came crumbling down between the West and the East. I will never forget sitting in Moscow, Russia, looking up at this big screen, the premiere of the movie Johnny in Russia, and and watching myself speak Russian. It was just incredible. And I'm thrilled that uh, now the newly digitized movie, uh, I guess that means they're adding a lot of ones and zeros and pixels or whatever, (laughs) It will be premiered on August the 6th at Calvary Community Church in Westlake Village, California. If any any friends, if you any of our listeners have any friends in Southern California, send them over to the movie on August the 6th. Who knows? It's going to be quite a celebration.
1: Well, it is. It's going to be a red carpet event. Senior Pastor Sean Thornton is going to be there and, and part of the uh, the evening as well as other pastors from the area who have... Um, worked with johnny and friends over the years and it's going to be quite a a celebration you know it's it's interesting to me that uh, in the context of the christian faith you can look at 50 years being confined to a wheelchair and all that is attendant to that and see that as a as a representation of god's faithfulness when you consider the ministry that has come out of what for you began as a tragedy and remains a hardship it it really is a, a story that that encourages all of us to think perhaps a, a bit differently about the things that that challenge us.
3: Oh, absolutely. And Georgine, the other day, I just happened to be reading 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. And uh, Peter says, he says, after I have suffered a little while, mm. the God of all grace will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish me. And I tell you, looking back over 50 years, I'm amazed that It really does feel like only a little while, and maybe that's what happens. Maybe God does that when we finally learn to trust Him, because even now when I look back, I cannot fully recall the horror, all the despair, the mind-numbing depression. So I guess I think when we learn how to trust God, He pushes into the background the terrible times of loss and anguish and grief, and over time and with prayer and trust in Him, he, he seems to bring forward just the highlights of our lives, just the moments of hope and peace and growth. And I think that's what the Apostle must have been talking about when he said, after you suffer only a little while. Fifty years doesn't feel like a little while, but when I look back on it, oh my goodness, it's like a snap of the finger. I don't know where the time has gone. We are indeed, as the Bible says, "whiff of smoke and fading vapor, and... I just want to use the rest of my life. I want to squeeze every ounce of ministry effort that I possibly can out of this paralyzed body to be used of the Lord, to advance His gospel, to reach special needs families, and to just fit into his plan for my life. Whatever that plan is, I, ju- I just want to be faithful.
1: Mm. We're talking with Johnny of Johnny and Friends, Johnny Erickson Tato. We're going to continue our conversation in just a few moments. Uh, she is marking 50 years of confinement in the wheelchair that has birthed a ministry that has reached all around the world. Who would have thought that possible? Oh, but God, we're going to be back in just a moment.
0: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. I
1: have to tell you, there are some days when well, you come to work, you do the interviews, and you go home again. Today, I've looked forward to a conversation with Johnny Erickson Tata and to join her in marking the 50th year coming up this next month. I believe it was July the 30th, 1967. Uh, That left her as a teenager, um, a quadriplegic. She was in a driving accident at that time. She spent two years in rehabilitation and emerged. With new skills, you might recall seeing her with that paintbrush uh, between her teeth. And uh, just the ministry of Johnny and Friends has, has had an impact all around the world. Uh, she's also uh, premiering the re-release in the digitized form of the movie that was very popular some 38 years ago, Johnny. Uh, it was produced by Billy Graham um, Worldwide Pictures, and there's going to be a premiere coming up in August to re-release that in that digitized form. I should mention that the movie has been translated into 15 languages, and shown in countries all around the world. Um, So we're excited about that. Now, you um, write about the fact that making the movie was a bit of a challenge. It wasn't quite as smooth as one might imagine. Do you recall some 38 years ago uh, starring in a feature film that bore your name and and the challenge of uh, of playing that part?
3: Oh, absolutely. You know, doing a movie, um, especially a film about myself, was not as easy as I thought it was going to be. Um, I would memorize lines from a script, and I would realize halfway through a scene that I wasn't acting. This was real, and, and perhaps it was a little too real.
4: Mm. I, I remember
3: a scene where the actor playing my high school boyfriend, he kissed me in this elevator. This was just a, a movie recreation. But I tell you what, it felt, it felt way, way too real. And when the director yelled, cut, and the actor just got up and walked over to the catering truck, I just sat there with all these emotions Mm. and feelings from the past starting to well up, and, and I realized that the past maybe wasn't all that far behind me, and I wondered if I had gotten myself into something that would pull me and drag me back into that frightening world of depression. And it happened on many scenes of recreating that movie. But thankfully, the shooting only lasted around eight or nine months when it was over. I was so glad it was over. But Georgine, there will be no Son of Johnny or Revenge of Johnny or <laughs> beneath the Planet of Johnny or Johnny 2 or anything like that. I'm so glad I did it. So glad for the decisions for Christ, which uh, came about as a result of it. But uh That's behind me. I'm very,
1: very grateful. Once was enough, but I'm grateful that the new technology makes it possible for the the movie to be digitized, and uh, that makes it possible for more people to see it. And as you have always expressed, your desire is that people would come uh, to know Christ and to trust in him.
3: Absolutely, because life is hard. I mean, we've got listeners tuning in right now, and they may not be in a wheelchair like me, but they are struggling with a broken heart, maybe not a broken neck, but a broken home, and there is depression that feels overwhelming, anxiety. Um, Families are in need of help. We don't know how to manage. We can't we, we, we don't know how to embrace the God who can be found in in our pain and suffering, and depression uh, is just we're holding it at an arm's length distance, asking God for for grace. It, it, it's a hard world, and I'm so grateful that this movie, and in fact my life, can can be a, an illustration, as it were, that. You know, with God's grace, it's possible. Mm-hmm. You can do this. You can have his courage. You too can wake up tomorrow morning, and you might say to yourself, I can't do this. I can't do it anymore. But you can say, I can do it through you, Jesus, as you give me strength. And you know what? Then you got to walk through your day moment by moment, not not just check in with God in the morning and maybe in the afternoon and later that evening, but moment by moment, it's a it's a momentary reliance on Jesus. It's, it's praying without ceasing. It's putting your hand in His and keeping in step with the Spirit, as the book of Galatians tells us to do. And And keeping in step with the Spirit requires a moment-by-moment moment walk. We all talk about our walk with Christ, but some of us, are uh, running a marathon, and we're leaving the Holy Spirit way behind, mm-hmm. or else we're running way, way ahead of Him. But God requires that we, we we take small steps in our days, and when we trust in Him, then He does exactly what I was sharing from First Peter chapter five, verse ten. He restores, He confirms, He strengthens, and He establishes us. But I tell you what, Georgine, it's a fight.
4: Yeah. It, it
3: the, the the Christian life is a good fight. Even Paul calls it a good fight. We've got to fight to stay satisfied in God. We've got to fight to stay joyful in Him. But even though it's a fight, it's a great fight. It's a good fight because the rewards are out of this world, and the joy that He gives and the peace of heart and mind in the midst of the worst torments can be so satisfying, and it can get us through from one day to the next, not not begrudgingly, but even happily, believe it or not. Yeah,
1: yeah. I appreciate the movie, Johnny, because it gives us a snapshot of a period of your life that that tells a a meaningful story. But I I love moving forward, uh, looking back to 50 years ago when those events took place and seeing that you are continuing to walk with Christ, that he has been faithful to do the very things you trusted him to do back then. Today and the ministry that he's called you to continues to reach out to people, uh, families with uh, special needs uh, children um, and and adults, uh, ministering to them all around the world. Now, uh, Johnny and Friends was founded in 1979. Talk a little bit about those early days and where you see the ministry today.
3: Well, after the movie was released, I began getting letters from people who had been blessed by its message, and of course, many of these letters were from families with disabled children, and they were all asking the same questions that I once asked, and... I knew I had to be a good steward of all this response, and so that's why I started Johnny and Friends. It's a ministry to draw people with disabilities and their families to the God of the Bible, to his people, to the church. And now decades later, we take, as I said, wheelchairs and Bibles around the world to needy disabled people. We bring spiritual hope. Uh, We work with Christian colleges, training young people to take the banner of the good news of Jesus to disabled people around the world you know all this from a young kid who once broke her neck hmm. and and georgine there's a, there's a line in the movie where i say to uh, another uh, i think it's a vietnam veteran yes it was a vietnam veteran who had lost his uh his hand and had lost his sight in one of eye, one eye and i told him i said i would rather be in this wheelchair knowing jesus than on my feet without him and it feels so good so many years later to still Yes. Believe that, to still say yes. that and mean it that there really are more more important things in life than walking, there really are more important things in life than having use of your hands, and my life goal is just, just to tell other people, especially people with disabilities like me, that it 's possible that joy and peace and confidence in Christ really is possible in the hardships.
1: Well, congratulations on the re-release of the movie, but more importantly, thank you for uh, living out the very faith that you have so eloquently spoken of. Uh, written about, uh, painted, sung, uh, all the ways that you've expressed your faith in Christ and through um, difficulties and challenges I think most of us will never fully understand and appreciate, but we are grateful for you and your uh, faithful walk over these 50 years from a wheelchair, and it challenges all of us who perhaps don't struggle with physical disabilities but are called to have that same kind of minute-by-minute faith that you described. Uh, We want to reflect uh, faithfulness to him as he has demonstrated himself faithful to you and and certainly to all of us. Thank you so much for talking with us today.
3: Absolutely, Georgine. And and if there are any friends listening who would like to share their reflections of what we've talked about, um, they can always reach me through our website.
1: Absolutely, Johnny and friends. Thank you so much and have a wonderful evening. You
3: too. God bless.
1: Okay. Is she just the, the greatest thing or what? She's just remarkable. I... Uh, you know, I think about what she has gone through, and I, I mentioned briefly at the start of our conversation in the previous segment um, that I had a brief time to be with her when she was here in the Portland area. And, you know, a, a brief time. And then she spoke and she talked about the challenge it is to just navigate the day, to get out of bed. And she gave you kind of a a very um, condensed version of that. Um, what it takes for her to be involved in ministry and to express the joy and reaching out to others when I think most of us would want to turn in and just stay in bed and roll over or have someone roll us over in in her case. She really is a remarkable woman, and I think she challenges all of us to perhaps think differently about the challenges uh, we face. So so appreciate Johnny and friends, and you can find out more on. Uh, Their website, Johnny and Friends, the ministry. Also, they have a Facebook page. You can check them out there. All right. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we're going to talk with Robert Rucker. He's a nuclear engineer. We're not talking about nuclear science. He's also the organizer of the International Conference on the Shroud of Turin. In fact, it's coming to the state of Washington. We'll tell you more about that in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
0: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: Have you heard that the international conference on the shroud of Turin is coming to Pasco, Washington? Well, if you haven't heard, now you know. This is a conference uh that is uh is coming and in fact it's it's rather fascinating. They're going to bring a full-size negative image of the front and the back of the uh, shroud and uh, we're going to talk about that in just a moment with Robert Rucker he's a nuclear engineer but he's also the organizer of this international conference on the shroud of Turin uh, the uh, uh, the question being asked is, could the Shroud of Turin be the authentic burial cloth of Jesus? Uh, and this international conference will feature experts, uh, presentations and so on, seeking solutions to the mysteries of the Shroud. Well, joining us is Robert Rucker. Again, he's a nuclear engineer and an organizer of the International Conference on the Shroud of Turin. Thank you so much for joining us. Yes, uh, thank you for having me. This is absolutely fascinating that uh, this uh, conference is coming to Pasco, Washington uh, on the 19th through the 22nd of July. Let's talk a little bit about um, the, the conference and the fact that there's going to be a full-size negative image of the, uh, of the shroud itself.
4: Yes, uh, let me me be clear, first of all, that the Shroud of Turin uh, never uh, leaves Turin. It only goes Mm -hmm. on exhibit in Turin, Italy. So what we will uh, be having here is is a full-size replica of the Shroud of Turin. It's the best that can be done. (laughs) Yes, and and it it will be uh, on display uh, during the conference. Tell us a bit
1: about the conference.
4: Uh, Yes, well, it's uh, Wednesday night uh, from 630 to 9.30. Uh, is free, uh, and then it will be all day on Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Uh, the dates on this is July 19th to the 22nd. Uh, and uh, on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, it will be all day. We'll start early, uh, 7.45 some mornings, and it runs up until 9.30 at night. Uh, and we had to have such a, a long schedule in order to get everyone in. There's uh, a lot of research that's been done around mm-hmm. the world on this, uh, this uh, Shroud of Turin, it is the most researched uh, ancient artifact in human possession, without a doubt. Uh, and be- because this is so fascinating, you, when you look at it, y- y- your first inclination is, well, this is Jesus. Uh, this is." Uh, you see the image here, clearly, I'm, I'm looking at a uh, National Geographic from June of 1980 and a lot of people remember when this came out all uh, individuals uh, and they still remember it because it's so impressive. It's yes. a four, four page fold out and you can see the a fairly high-resolution front and back full-size image of a naked, crucified man that was crucified exactly as Jesus was crucified, according to the Bible. Uh, And yet there's no pigment in this image. It's not a scorch, and it's not a photograph. So the obvious question is, could this really be the burial cloth of Jesus? I think the answer is yes.
1: There's going to be 33 experts from the United States, Italy, Spain, France, and Australia. They're going to make 52 presentations on their research into these uh, mysteries. And you yourself have used nuclear analysis uh, computer calculations to explain the only exception, um, which is the carbon-14 date obtained in 1988. Talk a bit about your work and the part that you'll be playing at this uh, conference the 19th through the 22nd of July.
4: Uh, Well, yes. Um, I am a nuclear engineer. I I obtained a bachelor's and master's degree from the University of Michigan and spent 38 years in the nuclear industry running various computer uh, codes or software. Uh, And so I applied one of these codes to uh, model a human body inside a piece of cloth in a limestone tomb as it would have been designed in first century Jerusalem, Uh, and then making what I felt to be appropriate uh, assumptions regarding Neutron emission from within the body, that I I was then able to determine the uh, distribution of neutrons that would be in the tomb uh, if they were emitted from within the body. And that distribution of neutrons that I calculate uh, uh, agrees quite well uh, with the three different laboratory results that came in on the carbon dating. In other words, the carbon dating by the three different laboratories did not agree well with each other. They were statistically different values. Uh, And so that raises uh, questions uh, as to whether there is a systematic bias affecting all of the data on the carbon dating. And I believe that to be the case based upon the proper statistical analysis of the experimental
1: data. Well, we're talking about the um, uh, I'm sorry, were you going to go on?
4: Oh well, I, I could go on when, when I talk. I, I talk for two and a half hours. I thought I'd come up with air, for air for a little bit, but uh, y- yes, there's so many different evidences uh, on this piece of cloth. The carbon dating turned out to be a 1260 to 1390, uh, with uh, supposedly a 95 percent probability. But in my pocket, I carry an authentic Byzantine coin. And when this question comes up, I pull up, pull out the coin. Uh, this this coin was made in, uh, minted in what they called at the time Byzantium. We normally call it Constantinople uh, today, but uh, it was minted in 1025 to 1028. Uh, and so what that means is that 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 coin was made 235 years before the range of the carbon-14 dating. And yet this coin that I carry in mm. my pocket has the image from the face and upper body from what we call now the Shroud of Turin. So what this coin means it is that the carbon dating is must be wrong for some reason. And the real question is, how can the carbon dating be so wrong? And the answer is, to just abbreviate things, the answer is that this image that we look at because there's no pigment, it's not a scorch, it's not a photograph. Why do we see the image? How did the image get on here? The answer is that this image is a radiation burn caused by radiation emitted from within the body, which was emitted vertically collimated both up and down, and this so that the radiation burst created the image and evidently included neutrons as well, which then shifted the carbon-14 date. Now, I'm I'm saying all this in a very abbreviated mm-hmm. fashion, uh, but this is the result of three and a half years of my work and 11 papers uh, that I've uh, written. Uh, Ten of them are now available on academia.edu. The 11th paper is 74 pages long, and it's still in review at this point, so I've not released that yet. But uh, I have gathered... Um, you know, because of the significance of these results, I am organizing this conference on the Shroud of Turin, and we will be having other researchers come in from the United States, Italy, Spain, France, and Australia to bring their latest research uh, on this, this
1: fascinating mystery, enigma, it's, it's an enigma mm-hmm. uh, wrapped in a conundrum. <laughs> Isn't it, though? <laughs> well, I should remind our listeners that a full-size replica of the Shroud will be on display at the conference. The first day, which is Wednesday, July the 19th, from 6.30 to 9.30 p.m., will be free. Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, the 20th and 22nd, will uh, be from 7.45 to 9.30 p.m., and will include lunch and dinner. You can uh, find out more about the uh, the conference um, and let me ask you if this is the best way to do that at shroudconference2017.com. Is that where you would suggest our listeners go? Well, we have
4: uh, that's our, our older website. We now have a new website. The old one redirects to the new one, but the uh, address for the new website is shroudresearch.net.
1: Shroudresearch.net. Okay. And I'll put a link on our website uh, as well so that people can, uh, can find it when they're looking. Well, this is very exciting um, to have uh, this kind of a conference so close here in the Pacific Northwest uh, so that people just like me and you could come and, and listen to what the experts have to say. Why for you is the Shroud uh, of Turin so important? Our, our, certainly our faith is not based on the outcome of, of this kind of research, but there, there does seem to be convincing proof that there may have been some physical evidence of the resurrection of Christ. For you, why is this important?
4: Well, this has always fascinated me. I've um, found this fascinating for 50 years, uh, learning about it uh, as a a youth. Uh, And um, what I see here is physical, scientific evidence for the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. A normal human body, whether alive or dead, does not give off a burst of radiation. Mm In any sense, that would be sufficient to cause an image like this, a normal human body, whether dead or alive, does not give off a burst of neutrons to shift the carbon-14 date. Uh, And just as evidence, if you go to your closet or to your dresser and look on the inside of all of your clothing, you will not find a high-resolution negative image that's been made on the inside of your clothing by your body. This just does not happen. In, in other words, there is no mechanism for this to happen within our understanding of physics and science. Yet we have an example in the Shroud of Turin where it has happened. So therefore, this this cloth that we have here, I think we need to be open and receptive to the concept that this cloth uh, is outside of the realm of our understanding of science and physics.
1: Mm. Well, again, we're talking about the International Conference on the Shroud of Turing coming to Pasco, Washington, the 19th through the 22nd. You can learn more about that at shroudresearch.net. Um, and uh, we would encourage you to uh, to participate. It's going to be a great opportunity. And again, more research has been conducted on this piece of cloth than on any other ancient artifact. And to communicate the latest research, the International Conference on the Shroud of Turin uh, will give you an opportunity to, uh, to listen in uh, on that conversation. Hey, thank you so much for talking with us today and for bringing this opportunity to our area. Well, glad to be here and talking with you. Thank you so much. Again, Mr. Robert Rucker is a nuclear engineer and he's the organizer of the Shroud of Turin uh, conference coming to Pasco, Washington. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up.
0: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast, is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: Well, a former US Special Forces uh, soldier turned aid worker, caught on video braving the Islamic State gunfire to rescue a six-year-old girl in Mosul, told Fox News today that um, he knew God was on his side. God was with him. He said, I really thought I was going to die at that moment. He's 56 years old, Dave Eubank. Uh, He also said that after rescuing the girl, they had to go back and rescue two other guys. Well, in this particular mission, I believe it was God that helped the U.S. military dropped smoke. The Iraqis brought a tank and we ran behind it, he explains. The video recorded about three weeks ago showed Eubank, the special forces officer turned uh, humanitarian, wearing a helmet and bu- uh, bulletproof vest, running through gunshots to save the Iraqi girl with two colleagues and the tank providing cover. And I should mention the little girl was there with her family. She was underneath her mother, who had been killed, and her family members were strewn all around her. Eubanks says that the Iraqis understood that um, they were not abandoned and that the U.S. military was doing a fantastic job of being careful to hit ISIS and not to hit the civilians. Well, as founder of the Free Burma Rangers humanitarian group, he's made it his life's mission to help victims caught on the front Uh, The front lines against terror. We give help, hope and love in conflict areas in Burma, he says. We're living with the people to give them medical care and put um, put a light on what's happening. I should mention that after the girl was rescued and others uh, after her, that she was cared for for a period of time by his wife, who was also in the area and then others making sure that this girl, who is now parentless, uh, would uh, get the comfort and help that she needed. He says that before he went, he felt uh, the the scripture, "Greater love hath no man than to lay down his life for his friends," was brought to his his. Uh, Memory by God Himself urging him to take the risk in order to try to save someone else. He understood that that might not mean that he would survive the effort, but it did mean that it was worth making. Eubank said that the Free Burma Rangers are also working in conflict areas uh, in Iraq, in Kurdistan, Syria, and sometimes in Sudan. He said supporters could help by praying and going to the Free Burma Rangers website. So here you have a special forces guy who recognizes when you're in the military, you hurt people, you break. Break things You try to defend the interests of people who are worthy of that kind of defense. But after he has left his post as a special forces soldier... He's uh, now an aid worker, recognizing that there's another part to that story, and he's committed himself to doing so. I I thrilled as I listened to the interview on uh, Fox and Friends earlier today or Fox News earlier today in which he was quick to give glory to God for, uh, first of all, having a heart to be willing to lay his life down for his friends, to um, return to conflict areas where he once served as a soldier in order to minister to, to rescue and to provide aid and uh, comfort to those uh, who were in harm's way. And it was a testimony, and he was freed uh, to share his testimony in uh, in talking about what motivates his life today, uh, what motivated him to take the risk to save this little girl and to save and uh, serve and minister to others. Anyway, former Special Forces soldier saves a six-year-old Iraqi girl. After she was rescued, he and his wife uh, ministered to her for a, a period of time, making sure that she was in a place of safety, uh, connected with others who would continue that care. He says that God was on his side in that it was God who, uh, in his faith in God, his love for humanity, the Imago Dei that he recognized in the faces of those uh, who uh, he was there to serve, that led him to take the risk that uh, saved the life of this little girl. And we learned later a couple of others who were also rescued. The video, which can be found, I think, at Fox News, if you... um, Google that again, uh, the name of the individual, last name Eubanks, Dave Eubank, um, shows him running with constant gunfire to the place where the girl was, surrounded by the dead bodies of her family members, uh, brought back to, uh, to rescue behind a tank. And it really is a, a picture of an image of what it means to, to serve others and to lay your life down for them. Well, today being Thursday... Naturally, Friday will follow. And I'm looking forward to a day in which we're not dealing with the more serious side of the news. We do that typically on Fridays, unless there's some breaking news story that merits more serious consideration. But tomorrow we're anticipating it's going to be a fun Friday afternoon. So we hope that you'll bring your sense of humor with you as you anticipate entering into the weekend. Um, And we're going to have a a time looking at some of the lighter side of the news. I recognize for for some of you, it might be the start of your week. You might just be in the middle of it, but it's still Friday. And so we designate that day for uh, for something a little different on Monday, of course, we'll return to the more serious news of the day. And unfortunately, there'll be far more of it than we could ever cover in the two hours we're given here. Uh, the good news is, uh, God is sovereign. He's overseeing the affairs of men. We have full access to His throne of grace. We can make our petitions, our requests made uh, made to Him. They're heard. Uh, he responds in His good time and His good sovereignty, doing what is in the best interest of all concerned. And so we can uh, we can rest for a day from uh, the news in quotes. We can uh, take some time over the weekend and just reflect on the fact that he's got the whole world in his hand. It was true when I was a kid and I learned that song. It's true today. uh, And I better uh, understand it because I am a mature adult. But he has got the whole world in his hands. And the things that we are witnessing today, the wars, the rumors of wars, the conflicts, the incivility, Uh, the uh, lack of community and unwillingness to uh, forbear all of those things ultimately will come to an end. And God has a plan uh, for those who have trusted in him. So while it's important that we understand the times and what's going on around us, it shouldn't distract us or preoccupy us from the things that we are ultimately called to do. And that is to share the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, to do it in a comely way that uh, can uh, be heard, speaking the truth in love, which can be difficult but uh, is uh, absolutely necessary. So anyway, all of that to say, tomorrow will lighten up. We'll get back to more serious things later in the week. I want to thank James Blinn for engineering and producing today's program, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show <laughs> part, part, of your day, part of your day. Have a good night.
0: Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast.